0: From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sering And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told in You Are Among Friends, the godfather of reality television. Creator, producer, co-host, writer of the trend-setting hit Real People Standing By. First off, let me thank my technical producer, Owen Wolf. And uh, just a quick reminder, if you haven't checked out my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, if you can't get enough of the conspiracy show once a week, you can always check out the podcast. It drops every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And you can subscribe and listen at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. One other short note before we get started, and that is... On Saturday, October the 26th, I'll be hosting a, a presentation, a workshop, call it what you will, on reverse speech, featuring the discoverer of reverse speech, and that is David John Oates, coming all the way from Australia, and that will be taking place at the Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church here in Toronto, 49 Donlands Avenue, just steps from the Donlin subway station. That's... Saturday, October the 26th from 2 to 4 p.m. More information forthcoming at riverspeech.ca, and I hope to see you there. All right. As I mentioned, a real television pioneer uh, standing by. He's really, he's done it all. He was a stand-up comedian. He's a writer, producer. He's a documentary filmmaker, and he has just recently, actually I think it came out on his birthday, released a memoir, a biography, an autobiography called Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV. And it's a great delight to have in studio for the full two hours, John Barber.
1: I am so thrilled to be here because I'm such a fan of yours, as you know. I live in Las Vegas, but I love listening to your show, and I spend more time listening to radio than I ever do looking at television. And it was really nice that you called me the godfather of reality television. That name was given to me by the very best critic in America. His name was Gary Deeb and he used to write for the Chicago Tribune. And he said of television in the mid-70s, he says television is the only business in America where competition does not improve the product. (laughs) But he knew when I went back to Chicago for a couple of weeks to fill in for a guy that used to host the morning show. His name was Steve Edwards and he moved on to host uh, the show that I had created in Los Angeles called uh, AM Los Angeles, and I talked to him about how I wanted to do stories about real people on television, because, of course, what, one of my heroes was Studs Turkle, mm-hmm. who wrote Working, and he was from Chicago. My, very, my second favorite American writer was Ben Hecht. My favorite, of course, would be Mark Twain who said if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let us do it. (laughs) But (laughs) in any event, uh, I I mentioned that to him, and I quite accidentally, you're going to find out, Richard, as you get into the book, that a lot of the really magnificent things that happened to me, getting real people on the air was a happy accident, Um, becoming the private writer to the most powerful entertainer in the world, Frank Sinatra, for four years was a happy accident, and then more important than that, becoming the Boswell to Jim Garrison to tell Jim Garrison's story. I was the only one to whom he told his story in ten years following the loss of the Clay Shaw trial. But he indeed did not lose that trial, which we I hope we will get to in the, in the in the second hour. But everything that's happened to me has been almost as though it's been preordained or divine intervention. And that's a very strange phrase for me to use, Richard, because I'm a non-believer. But Joseph Campbell once said, the guy that wrote Power of Myth, if you follow your bliss, doors will open in the universe that you don't even know exist that will come there to help you. And that has happened to me all of my life. All these Beautiful things that were accidents and all the disasters in my life, Richard, were those things that were well planned.
0: Although some of those doors at the time must have felt like trap doors. People listening at home, we're going to spend the first hour talking about your remarkable, your early years, your storied career in Hollywood. In the second hour, we will talk about Jim Garrison and JFK. I mentioned trap doors because you had more than your share. And you watched your father march off to war 80 years ago in 1939. You didn't see him again for 20 years Tell me about a little bit about your relationship with your dad.
1: Well, wow. I was blessed to have a father for a few years because I didn't really know that I had a mother for six years until he left. Uh, my father joined the Canadian Army in 1939 to go off uh, to the peace and quiet of World War II. <laughs> he would rather face Germans than with guns than my mother with a beer bottle in her hand. But when I was a youngster, my father I, I was 2 earth, I guess, and he taught me the alphabet from A to Z, and he taught me to count from one to 100. So when uh, I went to Adam Beckett at, at, uh, uh, Public School in the East End, and when my father took me there, I was to be enrolled in kindergarten, and he said, my boy is too smart to be in kindergarten. So they wanted to prove how smart I was, so he had me do the alphabet from A to Z, and from 1 to 100. So I skipped kindergarten. I didn't have to play. And then I skipped another grade without ever ever studying. And then I skipped a lot of grades because it's not because I was intellectual, but because I was a real truant. I didn't really like going to school. But when my father left, I suddenly, I was born in the Salvation Army Hospital as an unwanted child. And I didn't know how unwanted I was until I was born. When I first heard my mother, I thought my name was, that's enough. But my, 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 When my father left, my mother brought uncles home like grapes. They came in bunches to the house. And most of them came to booze with my mother or bed my mother. And quite two or three of them came to actually beat my mother. And one of them almost murdered me with a Christmas gift that my mother had bought me. She she never wrapped a gift. It was just she'd get a white card and she'd write John and Mom on the bottom. And uh, she was a manager at a Kresge store, and she brought home a bow and arrow set because she knew I was a fan of, I guess, Earl Flynn and Robin Hood. And we didn't never had a tree, and she just pl- placed it behind a uh, a stuffed chair. And this uncle that came, his name was Garth, and he looked like Dennis O'Keefe in uh, the movies. I don't know if you know the movie actor Dennis O'Keefe, very nice looking guy, but his personality like was like Ernest Borgnine mm-hmm. From Here to Eternity. When he was out of the house he was in uniform and when he wasn't uh, when he was in the house he was he was in his underwear and he and his mother always drank and he ended up beating him unmercifully a couple a couple of times. I had to run, to run to the cops. But anyway they, this day I didn't want to take the bow and arrow out. I knew it was there and my mother said, Get your gift and I didn't want to touch it. And he said, Get your gift. Get your gift, kid. And and I didn't get it. So I pulled it out and there it is. A real bow and arrow set, steel tipped arrows. And he said, Let me show you how that works and I no, 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 we'll go out in the in the yard and you know it. So he grabbed it from me and he said, We're gonna play William Tell and you're going to be William Tell. I'm going to shoot an apple off your head. He took an arrow and he shot it right past me. It went right through the stuffed chair. And my mother started rocking back and forth like Ray Charles, screaming at him to stop. And he said he was having fun and he was going to. Well, I dodged around the house. The tables were broken. The glasses were broken. And I finally deep like a good hockey player and got out of the front door And I ran to the railroad tracks. My best friend at the time was a young guy named Mel Nixon. And if if, uh, Neil Simon ever wrote a Junior Sunshine Boys, it would have been me and Mel. And we used to always hop the freight trains. And once we went even to Hamilton, we couldn't get off the train. And I ended up in an empty boxcar. And I was there for two days. And Richard, I must tell you, it was the most peaceful two days ...of my life, and it reminds me a lot, I went, when they were recording, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner Hmm. did a thing called The 2,000-Year-Old Man, that great comedy album, and Carl says to Mel, Mel, what was the happiest day of your life? And Mel Brooks says, happiest day of my, my life was when I was in a rowboat in the middle of the Pacific. And Carl says, how can you be happy in a rowboat in the middle of the Pacific? He says, because a couple of minutes before that, I was in shark-infested waters. Right. And I was the one who laughed the loudest, because that brought back memory. And then the shock was that after I did that, I ran to the police station, which was on Main Street, right across from the library. That's why when I discovered there was a library in Toronto, it was right next to the police station, (laughs) where I went off and, and... Oh, there were two nice cops that came back to the house, and, and I didn't want them to go to the door. They went to the door. And my mother, who had been severely bleeding two days earlier, black and blue, and the eyes, she looked gorgeous when she answered the door, all made up. And Garth was all made up. And it was like that. And I spent most of my time after that on the streets from the time I was six to the time I was 17 when I left Canada to go to become a professional gambler. Um, and you know, the thing is, when you come from a broken home, and so many more people do, you do things to get attention, Richard, and they're not good things. They're always bad things. And uh, uh, Mel and I and some of I, I, I was sort of... The weakest one in the group, and I was bullied. and It was my mouth that came to my defense, and t- oftentimes I would say things without even thinking about them, and I never knew where they where they came from. You know, when I was a youngster, nobody I never saw anybody fat ever. And if you look at pictures of Toronto in the 40s and 50s or New York or Chicago, street scenes, you won't see fat people. Well, I had one fat people, person, and he was my eighth grade teacher. His name was Hetherington. I can remember it like that. And he was a brilliant teacher. He was like an old English film, excellent teacher. But he was the meanest human being in the world. He complained about everything, and he was so heavy, they had to make a special chair for him. And he wouldn't start teaching, Richard, until he com- griped about... Uh, he was griping about America a lot, and he griped about Canada a lot. He griped about his life a lot. And this one morning, he was leaning down and rubbing his legs. And he said, Oh, God, my ankles are swollen. And... I thought I was whispering. And I said, How can you tell? <laughs> oh my God, you never saw a fat man. I'm so fat. He tipped over his chair, ran down, grabbed me, took me to the principal. And they used to have corporal punishment in those mm-hmm. days. And they'd keep the strap, which was lined with steel, inside of lemon water. So that when it hit you, it really, really hit you hard. So I, what I ended up doing, staying away from home, all the money that I could steal, and I stole a lot some of it from my mother's uh, purse, and I even tried to work. I tried to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to sell papers, uh, but it got so cold and I was distracted. You won't, you won't remember, you're much too young, but anybody over 50 might remember that you had your milk delivered. Yes. Okay, and you would put out an empty bottle around midnight, Mm -hmm. with a quarter or a a couple of dimes and a nickel in it. So I'm delivering papers. I see money in the bottles, okay? So I tell Mel, Mel, I said, hey, I'm not selling papers anymore. Let's go out and clean up. So we went from Main Street to Scarborough Road at at 2 o'clock in the morning, and it must have been 10 degrees below zero and our pockets were just full of change and sat down at the corner of Scarborough Road and Kingston Road under the lights so we could count the money. And all of a sudden, this car pulls up with bigger lights and two cops run over. In the meantime, Mel is running up the street and running away, screaming, he did it, he did it. So they track him down and they arrest him. Now they find $15 in coins on me and they find nothing on him. They take us to the police department. And we're 12 years of age, and they call Mel's mother because they believe Mel's story, that it was my idea, in in which it was. And then they call my mother. And I just wish they had never called my mother because she beat me all the way home. Now, I could have outrun her. I could have outrun her as a 12-year-old. But I let her hit me because I figured it would be over with, and it was the first time in my life. When she was hitting me and calling me a bastard like my father, I saw tears in her eyes. And it really made me feel dreadful. Now, I thought I would never speak to Mel again. And about three days later, he came and he knocked at my door with a big smile on his face. He said, hey, let's go to the movies. Well, I lived in the Manor Theater for five cents on Kingston Road. I go Mm -hmm. to the Manor Theater. And I fell in love with Kapper, Frank Capra movies, Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith Goes to Holly, uh, Washington, made in Hollywood. And I just, I, I was kept alive by stories, stories in the movies. And Lorne Green was on the CBC at the time telling stories in this Orson Welles voice. And I don't know if you ever heard of a writer named uh,
0: Gordon Sinclair. The broadcaster I worked at that station.
1: Well, his son, that was his
0: son? Ah. Oh, that must have been his no, son. Well, Gordon Sinclair, he was gone by the time I got there.
1: Yeah, anyway, well, yeah. Gordon Sinclair had written these wonderful books about real people and these short stories. And I was the one chosen in sixth grade to read the stories. Ah. So as a kid, it was the reading and the listening to stories that kept me alive. But now that I'm older, it's the telling of stories that is keeping me alive. Anyway, Mel says, let's go to the movie. There's another Gary, There's a Gary Cooper movie. And I did, I didn't want to have anything to do with him, but he had, he looked like Tyrone Power, and he had this black hair and this movie star teeth, and uh, he he was just uh, totally handsome and endearing. And then he pulls money out of his pocket, and it was a fifteen dollars. It was his half. He had he had dumped it in a sewer kind of thing, so he was never caught with the money, and he gave me seven dollars and fifty cents. He gave me half of the steel. We went to see the Gary Cooper film, and that's how I learned to whistle without putting
0: fingers in my teeth was watching a Gary Cooper movie. And, and Mel Nixon would do you a big mitzvah a few years later, as we'll discuss. A little bit later, when you went to visit him in prison. Oh my! But, uh, you gonna, read the book. I, I, I'm about halfway through it, and I got to tell you, it's absolutely. I'm, I'm just enthralled.
1: Oh, I must tell you, Richard. Uh, I just. Uh, you know, I've never told that story to anyone. I only told the story in the book, and I would love to tell it again because it's a very, very.
0: moving story. Also, as one Maple Leafs fan, hapless Maple Leafs fan to another, we have to talk about your scoring machine, hockey stick, a little (laughs) bit later as well. Oh, (laughs) You you pulled a bit of a fast one on mail. we'll talk about that as well. Your mother's not a virgin, the bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV, John Barber, live in studio for the full two hours. Next hour, we'll talk about... Uh, Jim Garrison, and JFK. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back. John Barber, my guest. Your mother's not a virgin. The bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV, with us live in studio for the full two hours. And this is his second time back in Toronto since leaving.
1: Yes, I left when I was 17, but I came back, as I said earlier, to be the opening act for Marilyn May at uh, the Royal York. And uh, this uh, Wednesday, I have... A number of things to do. Oh yes, and I have a book signing at your friend. Oh, your conspiracy
0: culture. Yes, on, White. on
1: Sunday between eleven thirty and one thirty. But I'm taking a whole day off Wednesday because when I left to become a professional gambler at seventeen, I deleted my entire family. That was my kid sister, and that was my uh, half brother, and of course that was my mother. Uh, totally deleted them. I didn't see my sister Maggie for fifty years, but I'm a a sucker for good writers. And uh, a year and a half ago, she wrote me a magnificent 11-page letter about how she wanted to make contact with me again. So I went up to... Uh I went up to Vancouver and re-met my sister, and this Wednesday I'm going to spend the whole day with her. We're going to go back to Adam Beck and the police department and the library and the rinks at St. John's Reformatory, where I used to spend most of my time in the Manor Theater. So I'm just loving being here, and loving being here and telling stories with Richard.
0: Uh, I just want to mention again, you mentioned the book signing, and that's happening Sunday, October the 6th, at Conspiracy Culture, our good friend, uh, Patrick and Kadena. And that's at 10, or sorry, 1605. 1605 Queen Street West, booth number 5. And, uh, again, that's Sunday, October the 6th. And uh, do we have a time on that? Yeah, it's 11.30 to 1.30. 11.30 to 1.30. So, uh, I mean, I'm sure, you know, John is delighted to sign your copy of Your Mother's Not a Virgin, but he's also going to talk to you about uh, the Garrison tapes and JFK and and all of that stuff that we'll we'll cover off in the second half. Whatever hour.
1: they wish to talk about. I just love talking to people because everybody has a story or more stories. But you were mentioning trap doors, which oh. is a really interesting expression comparing it to my observation about uh, uh, Joseph Campbell saying, follow your bliss and doors will open as if by magic, what they did in my case. And you said, but they could turn into trapdoors," And indeed they could if you looked into them as trapdoors. But if I looked into them as trapdoors, it's like giving up. And I couldn't give up. I kept going and kept going because if I stopped, I would cave in. I would die. I just... I could I could not stop, and that's why, that's why I kept going. And between the ages of 15 and 17, as I started to say before, the money that I could earn and the money that I could steal, I became a gambler. And there were eight guys that we played with all the time, and it was usually a, a Friday night or a Saturday night, and the oldest was about 40, and I was by far the youngest, and I was always the first to lose and the last to leave. And I realized after about a year of this that I wasn't there to make money. I was there to make friends, Richard. But who would want to be friends with these people? Who would want to be friends with a John Barber, this orphan kid who's gambling and stealing? I wouldn't want to do it. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I better do it properly. So remembering that the library was across from the police station... I went to the library and I got two books. One was called uh, Scarney on Dice and Scarney on Cards. And now I don't know if I have a photographic memory, but I can remember almost everything I ever read. And I've literally read thousands of books and can still, uh, can still quote from them. So what happened is I realized that I did not have to be in every hand. I could sit out two or three hands. And then once in a while, if you're smart enough, you could bluff. In a period of two and a half months, I won $700 in 1950, and I got up to leave, and I thought, I'm never coming back here. So the guys are all saying, I'm going to see you next week. Yeah, they wanted to get their money back, and I said, I'll be back to win more. That was another one of the lies I told. What I did is I went out and bought a beautiful blue suit, and that suit that you see on the cover of the book is a very expensive blue suit. And uh, that picture was taken in front of uh, Ben's uh, uh, Bugsy Siegel's Old Flamingo Hotel. And that was after I left Calneva. You notice I also have a Stetson on. And the Stetson was so it it was all hat and no cattle. I wanted people to think that because just in the suit, I looked 16 or 17. I was 17, but I, I put the hat on, I'd look better. So what I did is I bought these 2 tone black and white shoes, got the Stetson also, got on the train, and I was on my way to Las Vegas, Nevada. I I took the bus to uh, Niagara Falls. I crossed over, and the immigration officer saw this kid and said, "Uh, you look nice. What are you here for? I just said to look around for a day or two. I I looked around for about 400 days until the FBI nabbed <laughs> me. But in any event, the train is on its way to Las Vegas and there's an accident of some sort. And in northern Nevada, the train is stopped. And... Having had the law chase me, I think, oh, it's immigration. Called ahead and they said, is this Johnny Barber on the train? He's in the country illegally. We're coming to get him. So I hopped off of the train, delighted that when they showed up, they'd find an empty seat. And I go to a bus stop and the nearest place I could go was Lake Tahoe. So I got on the bus. That's all I had was that, and then 600 and some odd dollars in my pocket. And they dropped me off in front of the Calneva Lodge. It was so beautiful. And Lake Tahoe looked like a miniature version of... Amph National Park right, right. or Lake Lou. it was stunning and I walked in and it was like walking into the set of an MGM musical I was looking for Mickey Rooney <laughs> Judy Garland everybody was dressed magnificently they don't dress that way anymore no, not even sweatpants <laughs> oh it looks like they've just come from Walmart yeah. they're going to see these big acts and they're wearing shorts and sandals it's dreadful That that's the decline of culture in America but in in any event Uh, I walk around just drinking all of this in, and then I decide to go to the end of the table and start playing. So I knew everything about craps, and I'm doing it for about 20 minutes, and I'm holding my own. And once in a while, somebody glances over at me, and I think, oh, my God, maybe they can tell I'm only 17 years of age. Then pretty soon, some people at the bar are looking at my way, and then the dealers. And they put down the chips and the stick, and they look over. And I realize they're not looking at me. They're looking past me. And I turn around and coming through the glass doors, there is Frank Sinatra Mm. with his overcoat over his shoulders like an Italian Superman. He's not he's not side by side. He is literally arm in arm with Sam Giancana, (laughs) who was the mafia Godfather Mm -hmm. of Chicago. And the reason this 17-year-old knew that, because it was on the front page of the paper that I left on the train, and they were flanked by three Italian Praetorian guard. And everyone stopped at the marvel of Frank Sinatra, but more so me, because a week earlier, in the Manor Theater, I had seen... As the clouds rolled by, it was the biography of Jerome Kern, Mm -hmm. and Jerome Kern wrote the lyrics to Showboat, Right, and in that movie, at the very end of the film, there's Sinatra on a white pedestal in a white tuxedo singing, Old Man River, and I, there he was, walking right past me, and I, I was, it was shocking, and then... 20 to 25 years later, again by accident, I became his private writer and close friend for
0: four and a half years. Amazing. Amazing. Serendipity.
1: And, 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 you know, you mentioned when we were off camera how a lot of these things that have happened to me almost happen as though they were in a novel or a screenplay because I bump into these same... Right. People later on in my life, and again, all by accident,
0: all of it. I want. To, we'll come back to Frank Sinatra. I hope we have time. Uh, I'll just, if not, we'll have you back. That's all. <laughs> uh, but, but this this story really marks the, the the official official end of your relationship with your mother, and that is you, at some point you're picked up by the FBI and you're sent to a terminal island.
1: Oh, my gosh, yes.
0: And uh, you you did six months there simply because Well, it was
1: longer than six
0: months because I tried to escape. That's right. But Uh, tell the story.
1: Oh, 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 how I got caught is I was staying at a boarding house and uh, I met some really unbelievably fascinating people. There was a, a Jewish watchmaker there in his 40s. And I, we used to sit and listen to him talk about FDR and the progr- uh, pogroms in Russia that brought his family to the wonderful United States. Oh, I learned so much from him. And then we had a, a fellow named James Kirkwood who was an old-time silent movie star. And they were all, They were all men. There were no women. But there was this young 28-year-old who was in a suit all the time. And he was the stiffest, most miserable human being I ever met. Now, at the time in the early 50s, according to Joe McCarthy, there were commies everywhere, okay? And this young guy had a better red than dead pin in his lapel. And I said, you know, if I, when I got my blue suit, I put a rose in there. Why would anybody want to be dead for crying out loud? Because you, if, you know, rather, you, you can change colors. But not if you're dead, you know, you're just dust. So I was always sort of te- teasing him. And he absolutely, l- and he called himself a young Republican. And I don't know anything. And I said, you know, that's the first time I've ever heard those two words in one phrase because they're all old republicans that i know always and, the
0: stand-up comedian <laughs> yeah always
1: and I, I hadn't become a comic yet, but this kept blurting out and people would applaud and laugh at the table because it was like you know here we got the sunshine boys going at one another but he hated fdr he said god crippled him because he's a comedy commie and gave him this Ugly Eleanor to wake up to, to realize that he was a commie. And, oh, just he said the most vile things. And I said, you know, your grandfather, I'm sure, is collecting Social Security. Do you send a thank you note to the Democrats and FDRs? Family for giving you Social Security because from what Lenny tells me, that saved uh, capitalism from socialism. Okay, he also uh, passed um, Glass Steagall, which would prevent Wall Street from gambling with their funds, which caused the uh, which caused the recession in 2008. Now we're going to have to take a break here, but when we come back, I'm going to tell you what happened. That the FBI showed up at the door.
0: There you go. He hears the music. He knows. We throw to a break. (laughs) Makes my job very easy. John Barber, your mother's not a virgin. The bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV. Stay with us. So are you to the conspiracy show with Richard Sered? Welcome back, John Barber stays with us, and for the full two hours, and at the top of the hour, we'll kind of switch gears and talk about uh, the Garrison tapes and JFK, uh, the American media, uh, and and much more. But right now, we're talking about his his early days, and uh, when last we spoke, just before the break, you were uh, you were sitting in uh, stir in Terminal Island, just Uh, off the coast uh, of. At the dinner table, and we were having this argument with this
1: young Republican. Oh, yes. And, uh, I said to him, I said, you know, you're putting down uh, Roosevelt. I said, but you know, I, every place I go in Los Angeles, I say Roosevelt Boulevard, Roosevelt Golf Course, Roosevelt High School. And I said, and it wasn't the Democrats or Roosevelt that caused the Depression. Lenny tells me it was a Republican named Hoover. And the only thing named after Hoover is a vacuum cleaner. Well, the whole table screams and applauds and he throws back his chair and he's gone. Five minutes later, five minutes later, there's a knock on the door and the landlady opens the door. It's two FBI agents and they're asking for Johnny Barber. And I run up the stairs, get into my room, open the window and jump out on the roof. I'm going to jump and run away. There are more, two more cop cars down below waiting to catch catch this Canadian commie who might be overthrowing the government of the United States. So they take me downtown, they fingerprint me, and and they realize that I'm no threat to the United States of America. I'm just a threat to some shop owners on Kingston Road in Toronto if I I go back. So they turn me over to immigration. Now, immigration tells me, that we don't send you back by yourself. We wait till we gather a bunch of Canadians. I used to joke about this, so that we get a whole flock of, of Canadians, and then we fly these Canadian geese back home, so you're going to be around here a long time. Well, I decided that I wasn't going to stay there, but they said the one way you don't have to stay long Is we'll give you voluntary departure, and you won't be on record as being deported. And I said, what on earth is voluntary departure? You pay your way out of the country so the government doesn't have to spend a nickel on you. I didn't have any money. I hadn't spoken to my mother in a year and a half or two years since I left. And I had no choice but to make a collect phone call to my mother.
0: You needed $38.
1: I needed that money to get on a Greyhound bus to come back to Toronto, And I had no choice and I didn't want to call her. And now I realize the only reason that she answered and accepted the charges was to curse me the way that she cursed my father. Because when I told her where I was, she said, you deserve to be in prison. You're just a bastard like your father and you'll always be a bastard. And then I real, and then she hung up, and then I realized that's the only reason that she answered the phone to curse me. So I decided, you know, I'm not going to stay in here. And the guy who was next, and, and Mo, we were on the third floor, and there were about 50 cots, all occupied mostly by Hispanics, uh, an Englishman and a Frenchman, and mostly Hispanics. And the guy next to me was in charge of gathering the laundry every week and putting it down the chute to be cleaned. I didn't speak Spanish but I tried and broke in broken Spanish and I felt like Sid Caesar on the Colgate comedy hour trying to pantomime my, my way into getting into this basket and having him dump me down because I had cased the place. It was a minimum security terminal island, and it could have been a resort. It was right on the bay, so I looked out, and I could see merchant ships. I'll swim out, and I'll join the merchant navy. I don't care. And then to the left was 50 yards of grass and a guard who was half asleep and never had a gun, and I decided I was going to do it on a Wednesday which was, for some reason, a very busy day. I staked it all out perfectly, and two or three of my uh, uh, roommate's uh, friends we're going to help so anyway i get into the basket i go down the chute and i don't know if i'm going to hit some men or not but i hit these clothes and i jump up with the only i'm not wearing much and i rush to the door that leads to the bus it's locked i rush to the door that leads to the bay and the ships it's locked i do this a couple of times and i get so tired after half an hour i sit down in the dirty clothes and fall asleep and then seconds later i hear a voice says What do we got here? A live body and dirty laundry. What are you trying to do? I'm not going to lie. I said, I'm trying to escape. (laughs) So he said, well, come with me. Took me up to the office and they grilled me wanting to know who my colleagues were, my cohorts who conspired to help me do this. I convinced them that it was just me. So they took me back upstairs and sentenced me to an additional three months. And as I'm going to my cot, I say to the guy, it's Wednesday. Why are you guys all locked up? And this big grin in his face. Hey, kid, it's July 4th. Oh, no, Everything's locked up. It's America's birthday. So I realized that I'm going to have to become an expert on American history, which I did later at the University of Toronto Law Libraries. So anyway, I uh, uh, thir- 30 years later to the day, I'm 47, and I'm hosting... The most popular show in the history of television, which I had created, called Real People. And I get this letter. And this letter says, John, I know it's you. I know it's you. I tell my family, my wife, my friends, my kids, this is a guy that I dragged out of the dirty clothes at Terminal <laughs> Island. Please say it's you. So I wrote him back a really nice note. And I said, I'm so thrilled to hear from you and so thrilled that you caught me because i have you to thank for all this otherwise i'd be in jail or i'd be in the merchant navy and here i am standing next to sarah purcell wearing a brand new beautiful six hundred dollar brooks brothers suit sent him an eight by ten glossy of me with
0: sarah so there you go that was no trap door that was no trap door all right john barber stay with us back with more of my conversation with this television giant, TV pioneer, John Barber. And we'll continue to talk about his early life after the break. We'll get around to JFK, Jim Garrison, and your phone calls. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On the Conspiracy Show with Richard Seret. Welcome back. So little time, so much to tell. John Barber is here. Uh, so we were talking about you, uh, your botched attempt at escaping from Terminal Island, and uh, and eventually you know you are shipped back, and then you're worried about ever getting back in. Uh, and that's where we come kind of circle back to your old childhood friend Mel Nixon, who you grew up with, I guess, on Lawler Avenue here in Toronto, and. um but before we get to the story where you actually go, uh, you you need to enlist Mel's help uh, to help you get back into the United States because you're just going crazy. It's
1: not really help. Just uh, collaborate right. just uh, uh, uh,
0: verifying what I was saying was true. But before, but before we get to that story, yeah. uh, while we're on the subject of Mel Nixon, I just this is to me is a classic piece of Canadiana for those of us who love hockey.
1: Oh, I'm a junkie. Do you remember the one I love more? You know, when I would go to Maple Leaf Gardens, I'd go every Saturday night, spend fifty cents, standing room only. Right. There was one guy always at the far left end who would holler, "Come on, Teeter, <laughs> Ted <at T>. Kennedy." <laughs> yes, yes. But me, I always ho- always hollered. Come on Wally. I'm just a kid it was Wally Stanowski. Ah, Wally one Stenowski. of the best skating defensemen I ever saw. I can remember all their names.
0: Ah, for me it was Come on Mike Pellick. but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you and Mel were you, you played a lot of road hockey together. Yes, we did. And uh, but he had occasionally would you know kind of sort of aggressive outbursts with you and one time because you decided I was to fix a much
1: him. better hockey player mm. I was that was my first dream to be a hockey player and the reason I lost that dream was in the sixth grade we had a very young very beautiful teacher named Miss Britton, and one day she said uh, to the class all of you are going to stand up and tell me what you want to be when you grow up and kids would have got to say, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a nurse. Always got applause, came to me, I stood up and said, I want to play hockey. And she said, nobody ever made a living playing hockey. And the, the kids booed me. They literally booed me. So I started rattling off the name of every hockey player playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and then the Montreal Canadiens, and then the Chicago, and she, and she shut up, shut up, shut up. And I was so discouraged I gave up the dream of ever playing hockey just because of, just because of her. But in any event, I was really good. And especially at street hockey. And I could outscore Mel, even though he was tougher than me. And he would usually hit, it wasn't just a body check. It was, he would hit me. I mean, he would literally punch me sometimes. And he would, he would, he would hurt me. And he was about to hurt me a lot very, very soon. And we had verandas. I lived at 192 Lawler Avenue, and I think he lived at 198. And we had high porches because of the snow. And we had slats underneath so that there was dirt under the veranda. And these slats helped hold the porch up. And I would slide my stick in there because my mother wouldn't let me bring my hockey stick into the house. So one night, Mel and I finish, and I've just totally drummed him, right? And I'm good night. I'll see you later. It's dark. We played till dark under the streetlight. I put my stick in there, and he leaves. I wake up about one o'clock in the morning, and I have this awful feeling. Something's something. I can't sleep, Richard. It's just weird. So I go downstairs, and I reach under because I don't think I'm going to find my stick. And there's my stick. So I take it out, and I scamper up to 198 Lawler Avenue. And I reach under the veranda of his place and pull out his stick. <laughs> and I take it back and I stick it where my stick was, put his back in there, and I go to sleep. Well, about 7.30 in the morning, I mean, we, he's, at the, he's standing out in front by the car just looking at me with this big grin in his head face. And he says, okay, grab your stick and let's play hockey. So I said, okay. So I reach down. What do I pull out? A foot and a half of stick. And I hear him starting to cackle away. And then I pull out another foot and a half of stick. He sawed it in pieces. So I said, well, wait a minute. I'll go get my stick. And I run up to his place, (laughs) grab his stick, and I bring it down. And I am so elated. (laughs) And he smashes me right in the face. I almost lost a couple of teeth, and I was bleeding. So I rush into the house to wash up. And my mother screaming that get me to
0: quit that stupid game. <laughs> oh, so,
1: so that was that story.
0: The classic, that's a classic <laughs> hockey story. The scoring machine, you called your stick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's right of Tom, Tom Sawyer. It is. And painting the fence. <laughs> now, I, we've, we've got about five minutes here before the break. We can start the story, and if we need to carry on after the break, we will. But um, because you had immigration problems with the U.S., and you were desperate to get back to America because that was your destiny, mm. and because you were you had two felonies uh, here in Canada and and, uh, and so forth, it didn't look good for you, your lawyer told no, you. No,
1: he, he was an immigration lawyer himself at one time. He said, you have two separate... Felonies at 16 years of age, and you cannot change the law. They're not. What happens? You have to get permission from the consul general to ask immigration to reenter. So it's a two-stage process. He said you'll never get a yes because they will never change the law. And my going to the law libraries. I. I, You know what? I'm going to. We're going to finish this story later because this is very important. I want to talk about how I lost my belief in God at 12 years of age, but how I ended up praying when I wanted to get a, it's like they say, you know, every soldier in a foxhole is none, no atheists in foxhole. That's right. So, but let me, let me, let me, let me start the, the story then is that uh, I, I was convicted with mail along with two separate felonies on this one night. I, uh, uh I, I I was deported or kicked out of the country the second time when I was about 27 years of age. And I just come back from England where I went to track down my father. I my, found my father, and that wonderful, interesting, heartbreaking story is also in the book. But when I came back, I got into another argument with another young accountant. And the young accountant stopped me when I was going to my – I was now in a – a really nice uh, uh, I had a really nice apartment above Mort Lockman who was Bob Hope's head writer who became a big fan as you will see in the book and helped me a lot and and I was working as a, a, a waiter in an Indonesian restaurant at the time and I'm going into my room and this young guy again he was about 28 really nice looking I used to call him and his wife Ken and Barbie because they were both beautiful she was a blonde and he asked me what I thought about this Castro business. What do I know about Castro? And he said, you know, the guy's a commie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I knew a lot more about American politics by this time because I used to read IF Stone's Weekly. And a fellow named Haskell Wexler, a, an Academy Award uh, cameraman, had me house sit for him once. And he was a communist, and I read his entire library. So I knew a lot as a kid. And I was explaining to him, listen, Jack, he's, he, he wasn't a commie because Jack Parr had him on his show and Ed Sullivan and Castro went into Harlem and he ate chicken with the people and 20,000 people showed up. I said, so he wasn't a commie, he was a revolutionary. And he's talking about it, he's a commie. And I said, you know, it's all follow the money. He didn't become a commie until he nationalized the refineries in Havana. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, he said, if you're going to have to have a revolution, it has to be an industrial revolution if you're going to live in a modern society. And I said, America was selling him oil at $3.20 a barrel. And the Russians offered him oil at eighty-five a barrel. If you're a businessman, whose oil are you going to buy? You're going to buy the Russians. But the refineries were American, and they refused to refine it. And so Castro said, you either have a revolution or I don't, but he sees the refineries. Now I said, you're an accountant. You know about money. Nobody knows that Fidel Castro paid the oil companies back. And you know how he determined what they were worth? Their income taxes. He got copies of the income taxes that the oil companies paid to the United States government or really to the Federal Reserve as interest for the money borrowed by the United States government to fight these fake wars. So they got paid. And then the King Brothers Ranch in Texas owned most of the farmland in Cuba. So they couldn't grow a potato unless they wrote to the King Brothers and got permission. He did the same. He nationalized the King Brothers ranches and paid them the value that they said it was worth in their taxes. Only then did they call him a commie. Well, he was so angry at me, I said, listen, it's all in the congressional record. I've heard senators talking about it. I've heard Congress. I've heard people on television talking about it. Used to have a lot of intelligent people on television (laughs) years ago in the United States. And he walked away. Right away, the FBI showed up again to depart me. This it's the sequel time. folks it's the it, sequel. It's a sequel
0: and we'll and, pick up on that. Okay, great. On the other side John Barber stays with us into hour two we'll continue with uh, his remarkable life story Your Mother's Not a Virgin, the bumpy lifetimes of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV. Don't go away